The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. Go ahead and take your seat if you would. Grab a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And would you join with me in prayer one more time as we stand before God's Word now? And Father, as we have your Word open before us and as we prepare our minds and our hearts to receive your word during this time, we come before you once more. Lord, may all of this preaching time be a time of prayer before you, where we are interacting with you, where we are opening up our hearts to you, where we are listening for your voice to speak and to minister to us. Father, it's my prayer that you would send your spirit this morning to do an effectual work through your word, a work that I cannot do, a work that no man, no mere man is capable of, that it must be your Holy Spirit empowering, igniting, Exposing, convicting, encouraging, building up, strengthening. We ask for that kind of work to be done in this place today. That you would work powerfully through your word for our good and for your glory. And so we commit this time to you. We look to you and we ask for your blessing upon our time now. And we ask this in the good name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus. Amen. In our passage this morning, Ephesians 5, we're, we're looking at verses 3 through 14, and we see all of these contrasts. We see saints and the sons of disobedience. We see crude talk contrasted with thanksgiving, dark and light, works of darkness, and the fruit of light. These are, these are just some of, of those contrasts that Paul puts before us. And he says a great deal about who we are, about who you are, brother and sister in Christ, who you are, who Christ has made you to be, the work that he has accomplished for you on your behalf, the work that he has accomplished in you, whether you're a child, a teenager, a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, a a father, a mother. Paul tells us 
about the work that Christ has done for you and who you are, what your identity is. We need to grab hold of that. That's key this morning, who you are, because then Paul takes that and he contrasts it with where you are. This is who you are, but then he contrasts it with where you are, the world that you live in, the things that that are pushed in front of you, the things that you come up against, what you see, what you hear. This is where you are. But then Paul moves even from there, not just to dwell on this is where you are, this is the world that you live in, but he then gives some very practical instruction as well. This is how you ought to behave. This is who you are. This is where you are. And now this is how you ought to behave given who you are and where you are. Is everybody following this so far? That's going to be how we work through this passage. It's not from top to bottom. It's not verse by verse. But first, we're going to look through this passage, and we're going to see what Paul has to say about who you are, Christian who you are. And it starts right away in verse 3. And perhaps you missed it because right out of the shoot, we get hit with these words, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. But Paul says something important about who you are. They must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So that's the the first identity that Paul brings up. Who you are. Saints. You are saints. Now, if you're like me, you hear the word saints and and maybe you, you bring up a picture in your mind. I do. And the picture in my mind of a saint is someone that is wearing a robe that has maybe a halo, just kind of a glow around them. Gabrielle, are you with me? You see that too in your mind? And all kinds of gold adornments and accessories. Those are, those are the saints. But that's not what the Bible puts forward as saints. Saints are believers. Saints are Christians. Saints are those who have been set apart by God to be holy and to live for him. You are holy because of the work that Christ has done for you. You are a saint. So I find it helpful for me to picture saints in hand-me-down clothes, right? It doesn't have to be robes and this glow about them. No, everyday people. As I look out here this morning, I see saints, saints of the most high God. And that is who you are. That is who you are if Christ has done that work in you. 
Even as we've been learning in our study of the book of Ephesians, going from death to life, dead in trespasses, but God does this wonderful regenerative work and he gives life to you because he's rich in mercy and he loves you even when you were dead. He made you alive together in Christ. And because Christ is holy, because Christ has all righteousness and you are in him, now you also are holy and righteous. You are a saint. You are a saint. Maybe we could even start referring to each other that way, not just brother and sister, but saint. Saint has a certain ring to it. We are saints. Too often, maybe we don't consider that strongly enough, that this is what God has done for us, and this is the identity that he has given to us. Because if we really took hold of that identity and we understood what it was, the, the, the root of this is, is holiness, separation from sin, full of righteousness, that that is who you are. I think it would have a great deal of bearing on how we conduct ourselves in this life in the way that we behave ourselves, that we are saints. Even if we're in hand-me-down clothes. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's not the only thing that he has to say about the identity of the Christian in this passage. The next one we come to is in verse 8. The next one I want us to draw our attention to. He says in verse 8, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light light in the Lord. Now, this is more than just a change in surroundings, going from darkness, a dark place, to a light place. It's more than just a change in surroundings. No, this is, this is a change that takes place in you, in yourself. This is the miracle of being born again. This is the miracle of receiving a new nature, of regeneration. He doesn't say you are in light. No, you are light in the Lord. John, in his gospel, he speaks much about Jesus as the light Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Jesus in John chapter 12 says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John tells us right at the beginning of his gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And as we come to Christ, 
And as we belong to Christ, as we identify with Christ, we are light in the Lord. This is something even more than just receiving Christ's light or even just reflecting that light or, or shining that light. This means that you are light. And the places that you go, that you get to, to shine that light. light. Light's a powerful thing. Think about this. You don't turn on darkness, Right? I heard recently that in my daughter's room, there's the conversation at night about turning off the lights, which typically falls to Alex because she's closer to the light switch. Turn off the light. That's the way it works, right? Turn off the light. We don't ever say, would you go turn on the darkness? No. We turn off the light. The absence of light is darkness. But the presence of light overcomes the darkness. It's not that darkness overcomes light. It's it's the other way around. You turn on a light and it overcomes the darkness. The darkness vanishes, disappears. (coughs) And saint, as you walk, As you talk, as you interact as light in the Lord, the darkness will be overcome by you. And Christ is in you. You are light in the Lord. And then in verse 14, along these lines... Paul says that we are those whom Christ has shown upon. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are those whom Christ has shown upon. Now, last fall, Eric and Natalie and I took some of the youth on an overnight backpacking trip. We walked in the rain, in the dark, to camp. And in the dark, we set up our tents. It rained all night. The wind blew all night. And most of us woke up wet and cold. I didn't wake up wet and cold because I never really slept. I was wet and I was cold. That was the case for for most of us. It was one of the most sleepless nights I have ever experienced, apart from those deliberate all-nighters that I've done, but trying to go to sleep. And I remember first getting in my sleeping bag when it was still dry Natalie and Joel packed into a two-man backpacking tent with me, falling asleep, and then waking up. And it had only been about an hour, and I was ready for morning. I was ready for morning. I was waiting for that sun to come up. Have you ever experienced that? 
That morning, Eric, our Eagle Scout, got a fire going for us. Oh, and everybody was drawn to this fire. Light and heat. The wind had stopped. The sun had come up. We spent time around that fire. We ate breakfast. We read from scripture. We hiked in the sunshine. It was glorious. What a contrast it was to the wet and the wind and the cold and the dark. That fire and the rising sun, those were game changers. We ended up having a great day. But that fire and that sunrise, those are only faint whispers of the immense power of the light of Christ shining on you. Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. I might have felt like I was coming out of death as standing around that fire and seeing the sun come up, but no, it was nothing compared to the light of Christ. Have you felt that warmth? Have you felt that heat? Have you sensed that light upon your face? This is the light of Christ, and it's glorious. And we, saints, we believers, we Christians are the recipients of that. And not just occasionally, not just one time that we get to experience that, but that's what we live in. That's what we, what we dwell in every day. And, and even more than that, as we look forward to what is to come, there's going to be a day when there's no sun and there's no moon, Christ will be the light and he will give light and we will be in that glorious light forever and ever. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. Christ has shone upon us. We are light in the Lord. We are saints of the Most High God. This is, this is who we are. And it's important to understand who we are, that we take on this identity and we say, yes, this is who I am because it's so very different from much of what we're surrounded with. And that's what I'd like to focus our attention on next in this passage is where you are. Grabbing hold of who you are, let's look at where you are. And this brings us back to verse 3. And these words that might try to bowl us over, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. This is the reality that we are often surrounded by these just as the Ephesians were. This comes up time and again as we're going through Ephesians. It's not the, the first time that we've seen talk of these things. Why? Because it was prevalent in Ephesus. 
It's something that they were dealing with. It's something they were confronted with. It's something that they knew about. It's something they had to make deliberate steps to overcome, to avoid. And so it is in our day as well. Sexual immorality is the first in this list. It refers to engaging in or or entertaining any kind of sexual conduct that's in thought or in deed that's outside of God's good design. It's a big blanket term. It covers a lot of things. It covers pretty much everything, everything that is outside of God's good design and intent for sex. One man, one woman, husband and wife, monogamous, lifelong relationship. Anything outside of that falls under this banner of sexual immorality. Next, we see impurity. Impurity in these lists in the New Testament that we come across, impurity is often right there up alongside of sexual immorality. Speaks about actions, especially of a sexual nature, that are filthy, that make us unclean, impure, uncleanness. And then covetousness. Now, covetousness, that's a sinful desire, a longing for something that isn't yours, And it can find all sorts of applications. I mean, we can look back in in Exodus chapter 20. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And in this list, what are all those things that are prohibited? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Exodus 20 verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So covetousness can find all sorts of different avenues, but I believe that Paul here is intending it in relation to sexual immorality. It's the sinful desire for what isn't yours. And oftentimes in these lists in the New Testament, we find covetousness right in there with sexual immorality. In verse 5 of this passage, we see covetousness being linked to idolatry. Idolatry, because that object or that sensation or whatever it might be becomes what we think about, what we pursue, what we worship. That's what idolatry is. It is elevating something other than the one true God to the position of God in our lives so that it's what we think about, it's what we pursue, it's what we give ourselves to. Covetousness, the sinful desire for what isn't yours. And do you see how this can be played out in relation to sexual immorality? 
desiring and pursuing something that is not yours to have. In verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. These are all referring to ways of speaking. And again, seeing these related to sexual immorality. They don't need to be limited to that, but they are certainly related to that. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. The way I would summarize this, just from my experiences as a middle school and high school boy or locker room talk. Those were the sorts of things that took place in locker rooms. Filthiness. Foolish talk. Crude joking. We can get a cheap laugh by talking wrongly about sex. That's crude joking. And again... Paul is saying, this is where you are, Ephesians. Saints, light in the Lord, those whom Christ has shown upon. This is the reality of the world that you live in. These things are present around us. These things are promoted around us. And Paul has very stern warnings and very strong words. I also want us to notice that he speaks about another group that's present in this passage, and I think this is the place to to look at this other group. We've talked about the saints He says, the saints, those who are light in the Lord, those whom Christ has shown upon. But in verses 5 and 6, he talks about another group. You may be sure of this, verse 5, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, so that's bringing those those terms from verse 3 down to verse 5, sexually immoral, impure, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There's another group that's present in this passage, and they are the sons of disobedience. And I want you to understand this morning, because you're here, because you're in a pew, does not make you a saint, does not make you light in the Lord, any more than standing in my kitchen and sharing a cup of coffee with me would make you a Bronson. I'm glad you're there. I delight to share that cup of coffee with you. But it doesn't make you a Bronson just because you're there. Just because you're here doesn't make you a saint doesn't make you light in the Lord, doesn't mean that Christ has shone upon you, that you have woken from sleep and risen from the dead. And this isn't to be taken lightly. 
I certainly don't present it as something light, a reality that we need to confront. And I want you to think, I want you to consider, if you hear me this morning, I I want you to consider this. Do you fall into that group? Sons of disobedience. Daughters of disobedience. It should be a frightening place to be. If that is where you are, I am frightened for you, even if you don't think much of it, if you don't consider it to be frightening. Now, here's what I would ask you. Does sexual immorality, does impurity, or does covetousness have such a place in your life that it identifies you, that when people think about you, maybe your friends say that it's commonplace for you to speak about these things or to gravitate in that direction. Maybe you can even keep it hidden from those who are closest to you. Maybe your friends don't even know. Maybe your parents don't know. Maybe your spouse doesn't know. But in your heart of hearts, you know This isn't just an occasional stumble that I've made where I fail, where I repent, where I confess and I ask for forgiveness and I get back on course. No, this has become just the normal way of operating. This is what I do. This is part of me. This is is who I am. No longer conviction. Instead, it's just a, a growing desire. You think one more, and that that desire will finally be quenched. I'll extinguish that flame just once more. But it only grows. It's only adding more fuel. If you're in a place where repentance and confession aren't even considerations, I would caution you, beware You're in a dangerous place. If you're only thinking about what your next step is going to be in the pursuit of this sin, beware. Friend, you are on a path to destruction. I'm not talking about bad grades or fewer friends or a tougher life. I'm talking eternity. If any of these mark you, if any of these identify you, if any of these are something that you practice and think about and are getting more comfortable with and proficient at, if they're practices in your life, why do we practice something to get better at it? If you're getting better at this, beware. Paul refers to this group as idolaters, Someone who worships something other than the one true God. Not just Sunday morning singing. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about worship. Yes, Sunday morning singing is great and it's a big part of our worship, but all of our life is worship. It's Monday morning and the tasks before us. It's Wednesday evening and the activities we're engaged in. It's Saturday morning and the pursuits that we go after. 
Is Jesus Savior and Lord? Because he has to be both. You can't say, he's my Savior, I've got him, it's fire insurance, but Lord, Master, that I follow him, that I do what he says, that I obey his word, uh, we're just going to keep the Savior part, but I've got another Master, I've got another Lord. You cannot. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. You'll serve one, love one, you'll hate the other. And that applies even more broadly. Jesus has to be Savior and Lord. You cannot have him only as Savior and choose another Lord to serve. It is impossible. Impossible. The Ephesians, they lived in the midst of all of this. This is what was around them. They lived in this sex-saturated society as do we. And so how, saint, light in the Lord, those whom Christ has shown upon, how are we to conduct ourselves? Let me back up. This isn't in my notes, but I, I need to back up. Regarding the sons of disobedience, I need to say that there, there's, there's hope, Right? There's change, and it's not just an outward reform. Change your behavior. No, there is hope in Christ, and it's never too late. And if you come and you confess, there's not going to be a great shock or a pushing away or a casting off. There will be an embrace and a prayer and a celebration. There is hope in Christ to turn to him and be free, to be free. It's the gospel. It's the good news. That's why we're here, because we all struggle with sin. We all have areas where we're wrestling. We all have failures. And we're here because Christ has redeemed us. And we want to continue that redemptive work and we want to see that in the lives of everybody that we come into contact with. And so, saints, how do we behave ourselves in the light of this? Back to verse 3. Paul says that Sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now you're getting some idea of how I I picture things in my mind with saints, right? I see people in robes with a glow around them and lots of gold. When I read verse 3 and I, I, I see Paul writing it is not even to be named among you as is proper among saints. I get this picture of 
Victorian times, this Victorian prudishness where we pretend like people don't have sex and we never even talk about it. And I want to say, if we behave in that way, I think we're actually giving the victory over to Satan. What we need to understand is that God created sex. I recently had listened through J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And as I was listening to this, one of the things that, that he brought out for me, the first command given by God to man is what? Don't eat of the fruit of the tree? Huh? He creates man and woman in Genesis chapter 1, and God gives this command to them. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. That was God's first command to Adam. This is a good command by a loving God. His first command isn't a restriction. No, his first command is a permission. Be fruitful and multiply. In Ephesians chapter 5, what what this is saying is that these sins, that is, the wrong applications of God's good commands, shouldn't have place among us. So that people wouldn't talk about these sins, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, and then talk about the people of God as if they had anything to do with each other. No, these things should not even be named among you. He's not saying, don't talk about sex. That's not what Paul is saying. What he is saying is all of these distortions, all of these perversions of it, all of these wrong applications of God's good command shouldn't be identified with the people of God. You are saints. You are light in the Lord. You are those whom Christ has shone upon. You don't have anything to do with these. We're to be different 
We're to be distinct, set apart as holy, understanding and engaging in God's good commands and not conducting ourselves according to all of the wrong ways. This can get turned around. God's good commands can get turned. Now, just last week, Travis and and Matthew and, and Joel and me spent an evening down in our workshop. And one of the tools we were using was a bandsaw. It's a great tool, isn't it, Matthew? A bandsaw. A bandsaw is this big, long uh, saw blade that goes around two wheels. It's driven by a motor. And like most saws, it cuts really effectively. We were cutting out shapes on on pieces of soft maple, and it worked really well for, for some of these different curved cuts that we were needing to make. But now say we take this bandsaw, which works really well for for cutting this wood in the way we are needing to cut it. And because it has this upper wheel and this lower wheel and and a motor and a start button and a stop button, what are all the things we could do with this? We could take it off of its stand. We could expose these wheels that are covered, but we could expose these wheels that the saw blade runs on, and we could put these wheels on the ground and and use the start button and the stop button. We could power a cart with it. Think of all the things we could do with this bandsaw. Well, first of all, it would ruin the bandsaw. The bandsaw would no longer be a bandsaw. But it would also likely cause the loss of of fingers, or even worse. This is what happens when we take God's good gifts, be fruitful and multiply, he says to Adam and Eve, a man and a woman in a lifelong monogamous relationship. When we take God's good gifts and we decide to use them in ways they're not to be used. Not only do we ruin that good gift, but we end up causing positive harm to ourselves and to others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that sexual sin is especially destructive. He says it is a sin against one's own body. He calls it out as especially destructive. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he's talking about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. A very similar list. And he uses very strong language for the saints and what they are to do. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then that list. Put to death what is earthly in you. Now, it's not sexual desire. God created that. But it's the distortions, it's the pollutions, it's the perversions, it's all of the ways we turn it and get it wrong. Put it to death. 
suffocated. Don't give it anything. No fuel, no food, no light except the light of Christ. Starve it out. Get rid of it. In verse 5 of Ephesians chapter or verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 5, he also says that this filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking, they are out of place. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. This is a high standard. It's not saying just we can let a little bit. No, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, they should be so far removed that they're not even named among you. There is to be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. It's out of place. It doesn't belong among you. He says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. And, and I want to say for the parents especially, I want you to hear this. I don't want you to miss this. Let there be thanksgiving. We're good at speaking the negatives. I know as a parent, I'm good at speaking the negatives. I'm good at talking about the restrictions. I'm good about giving the warnings and saying, don't go there, don't do that, don't think this way, don't look at that. Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. I think with his emphasis on thanksgiving, we should celebrate God's good gifts and commands and we should celebrate all that he has permitted. If you think about, you know, living on a busy street and you have a great front yard and you put a fence around that yard because that busy street, you don't want your kids to get out there into the busy street and struck by a car. And we can too often tend to focus on the fence. Instead of all of this great yard that we have, that we can enjoy, that we can flourish in. No, it's the fence, the fence, the fence, the fence, the fence. Stay away, don't look, don't go. The only thing we focus on outside of the door is the fence. Why is there so much attention given to the fence? There's this whole yard. Let there be thanksgiving, thanksgiving for all of God's good gifts and his commands and all that he has permitted. Parents, talk to your children about these things, boys and girls. These are things that are not only for the young men in our church. I know historically that's been where the church has gone and where our minds have gone, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. It's the young men. It's the young men. But this is a real temptation for the young women as well. It may find different manifestation, but the temptations are there as well. We need to celebrate and praise what is good and right and give thanks to God for his good design. We are also, verse 6, 
not to be deceived with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't think these things are are light or trivial. The Ephesians, they had many religious teachers in their city. They had great temples, the temple Diana, Artemis. There were all sorts of opportunities for idolatry, for false worship in their city, and no lack of influences to lead them away from wholesome words and to deceive them with with empty words. And it's not just the outside influences. As Seth pointed out as we were talking about this as elders, sometimes it can be our own minds that deceive us with empty words. What's needed is the truth. We need the truth, not empty words, but wholesome words. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That happens as we take God's word in. Our minds are renewed. Reading God's word brings life to your mind. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he says to them, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. He's telling the Ephesian elders, It's the word of God that is going to build you up, that is going to carry you along and bring you into eternity. It is the word of God. James chapter one, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Don't be deceived with empty words, but take in with meekness, with a humility, with a receptivity, the implanted word, the word of God. Just very practically, Proverbs. Proverbs has so much to say It is so filled with wholesome words. On this topic, it's a a book that's written from a father to a son. No surprise, it has a great deal to say about sexuality. Something that we should read. It's something that we should be taking in regularly to be filled with wholesome words. Not allowing these things to be even named among us, but instead to have our lips filled with thanksgiving, to be taking in God's word. But then in verses eight and nine, Paul also talks about just our walking. Our walking. At one time you were darkness, verse eight, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as 
children of light. And verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He talks about the difference between the fruit of light and the works of darkness. And God has you where you are for a purpose, saint. God has you where you are for a purpose so that you can be light in darkness. It's not so that we can bunker ourselves, that we can hide ourselves, that we conceal ourselves. I know, let's all get baskets and cover ourselves. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp only to cover it under a basket. But what do they do? They put it up on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. And Jesus says, so let your light shine so that people would see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Saint, God has you where you are for a purpose, to walk as children of light. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I gave instruction to have no company with someone who is sexually immoral. But then he goes on and he clarifies because the Corinthian church misunderstood that. I didn't mean the sexually immoral in the world because then you would have to go out of the world. What he's saying is don't conduct yourselves with those who are sexually immoral, who are participating in the church. There needs to be a separation. There needs to be a distinction and a division. But the reality is that as we engage in the world, as we live in the world, as you go to work, as you go to school, as you recreate, we are going to be around those who are sexually immoral. Paul doesn't say withdraw, have nothing to do with them. Then you'd have to go out of the world. You have to lock your door. You'd have to unplug your TV, shut off all of your devices, somehow manage to shut off your brain as well so that there's just no engagement with anything. We are to live in this world And walk as children of light, shining the light of Christ. That's why God has us here, working to fulfill the great commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. We don't have to go far to find a need for the gospel And in verse 10, and this is where we're going to end this morning, in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We could say this is the high point. This is the great aim. Not not pleasing ourselves. Not worried about what's going to please someone else. Are they going to be happy with this decision or unhappy These are both great temptations, pleasing ourselves and and pleasing others. But pleasing the Lord needs to be first and foremost. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He is our master. That word that Paul uses, Lord, 
Master, try to discern what is pleasing to your master. But he is a good master. He is a good God who works for our benefit, for our good, and for his glory. I think we'd be well served to even get this phrase just lodged into our minds. What is pleasing to the Lord? As you go through the day, what is pleasing to the Lord? As you respond to someone that's spoken to you, what is pleasing to the Lord? As you look to engage your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your classmate, your sibling, your spouse, what is pleasing to the Lord? Again, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God. We may not get it right off the bat. We may make a mistake. We, we push a little here. We walk a little there. And as we walk with the Lord, and as we turn these things over to the Lord, we grow in wisdom and discernment to know what is the will of God. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he states the negative, but then if you read that passage, I want you to notice that he also moves on and goes to focus on the positive as well. He says that each person conduct himself going forward in holiness and in honor. That is asking, what is pleasing to the Lord? Holiness and honor. What is the the most holy decision here? What is the most honorable thing to my Lord, to my master in this respect or in that arena? Dear church, we're saints. Even if we wear hand-me-down clothes, we are saints We are set apart by God to be holy. We are to conduct ourselves in a way that's consistent with who we are. We are to conduct ourselves in a way that is consistent with the work that God has done in us, that this is our desire, that pleasing Him is our greatest pleasure, that we might radiate His light, that we might bring His life to others in a dark and a dead world. This is Paul's instruction to the Ephesians in this passage that we've studied this morning. And I think we don't have to go far to find that this is very applicable to us. This is very similar to the world that we live in today, the day and age in which we exist. You are saints, you are light in the Lord. You are those whom Christ has shown upon to awake from sleep, to raise you from the dead so we can walk in life and we can walk in light. Let's do that. And let's ask God now for his help to do so.
Father, apart from your strengthening us, apart from your power at work within us, this will not happen. And so even now, Lord, we we pause and we pray and we ask for this help. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to empower us so that we might live lives that give witness, that bear testimony to your work within us and your saving work available for others as well. Lord, that on our lips would be the gospel of peace and that through the works of our hands, and through the the places that our, our feet take us, there would be a consistency both in what we do and in what we say. And we depend upon you, Holy Spirit, to guide us in that way and to work this work within us. Lord, show us what is right. Strengthen us that we might do what is right. Help us in making choices, in making decisions that are pleasing to you, that you would be glorified in your church, that Pillar Bible Fellowship would be a church that stands as a light in a dark place, that we as individual believers would stand as lights in dark places, in all of the areas, in all of the places that we might disperse through the week, in all of the contact that we might have with different people, that we would carry ourselves as saints, as light, bringing life in Christ. Father, do this work in us, do this work through us, we pray and bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.